I am excited to be here. Uh, uh, as they've said before, but feels always right when you stand in front of a new crowd, you say your name. And so my name is Jacob Dunn, uh, and I am excited to be here. My wife, Kim, and then my son, my oldest son in the back, Ethan, he's over there. Uh, our three-year-old, I'm sure, is out running amok, uh, as three-year-olds are prone to do. We are excited to be here, and if I didn't get a chance to meet you last night, uh, I would love to meet you this morning once we're done here uh, and just get to know you uh, and your family. Uh, and so we'll be over here. Would love to have a chance to introduce, introduce ourselves to you. Uh, we are excited about what God is doing. Just by way of a brief testimony and, and keep it very brief, uh, I grew up in Owensboro, Kentucky, so just to the west of here, down the river a little ways. Uh, by God's grace, I grew up in a home with parents who loved Jesus and cared greatly about their children coming to know Jesus. And so we were the family that was in church. Uh, when the doors were open, we were there. We were there for Sunday school and worship. We were there on Sunday evenings and Wednesday nights, and we did the mission trips. We were always there. At a young age, uh, I came to understand my own sin, to know the great need that I personally had for uh, our Savior Jesus uh, and committed my life to him. Uh, I remember it very well, a revival uh, in Owensboro at Macedonian, what they called the green room, uh, because that's the color of the carpet and the pews in their sanctuary, at least at that time. Uh, and I walked the aisle and confessed uh, my need for Christ and committed to following him, I got serious uh, in a deep way about my faith in high school and began to pray for uh, God to just reveal to me his will and, and specifically in the choice of college and where I would go. Uh, and through that process, God revealed where he would have me go. I thought it for, was, was for one path. God revealed that it was for something very different than the plan that I had. Uh, and that specifically was to go into student ministry. And so my sophomore year, God called me into student ministry. Uh, and then when I graduated in 2005, I stepped into the local church and began doing student ministry, just kind of jumped headfirst into the pool uh, and started right out of the gate doing student ministry. And since 2005, in one way, shape, or form, uh, my family and I got married in 2007. We've been doing student ministry uh, since then, and we have been loving every minute of it. God has done some pretty awesome and miraculous things in our life and the lives of people around us, and we've seen him do those things, and we know that he will continue to do those things because God is good and he is faithful. And so we are excited to see what incredible things are next uh, and the miracles that God will continue to work. And so I wanted to share with you just a little bit about kind of my kind of heart for student ministry, a little bit about why I think student ministry is so important and is a vital ministry of the church. Uh, and I want to do that by looking at a passage that probably most of us are at the very least have a surface level of familiarity with. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 10, or perhaps scroll uh, with me to Romans chapter 10. Uh, and we will jump in there. Romans has always been a book that I have just naturally been drawn to. I love reading the book of Romans. Uh, it is so deep and it is so rich and you can read it over and over and over again. Uh, and every time you read it, the Holy Spirit reveals something new uh, or the Holy Spirit 
takes you to a place that you already knew and he says, here's something you've forgotten. And he is always reminding me of amazing things every time I read this book. And, and I love the way that Paul writes specifically the book of Romans. Uh, it's, it's a very, uh, he was writing to the church in Rome, obviously, and he has this very uh, dialogue tone as if he's having a conversation with somebody, but he's also making sure that they are clear on kind of the, the facts of the case as it would be. But he has this kind of intuition, it seems, where whenever he would say something, you would want to ask a question, but he already knows the question you're going to ask, and then he answers it for you. So you almost get the sense of this back and forth dialogue as you read the book of Romans. And there's so much depth, I think it's important for us given that we are in Romans chapter 10, to have just a little bit of a brief amount of context on what's happened kind of so far in the story. And so just very brief, uh, as we think about the first nine chapters of Romans, we see some very important ideas jump out for us. And so just real briefly, just three very important ideas before we jump into our text. We have to remember, Paul starts the book of Romans by saying, Remember that all people know of God, but also all people reject him. Both in their hearts, we've rejected God uh, by who we are, and in our actions, by what we do. Uh, Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is, this is the state of who we are. We are a sinful people. This is a rejection of God and a rejection of God's plan. And so this second important point of context is this idea that this rejection we call sin is present in all people and it deserves death. It deserves punishment. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What we have earned by our rejection of God by our desiring to go our own way is punishment. And because God is infinitely holy and infinitely just and infinitely good, sin against him is deserving of infinite punishment. And so death is the punishment that is required for our sin. And then the third important kind of point of context as we get into our passage today is this, that in spite of our great sin... In spite of how much we rejected God and desired to go our own path, he desires a relationship with us and he desires to live, that we would live with him forever. And so he sent Christ to us. He came to us knowing that we couldn't pay the punishment and be with him. He sent Christ to pay the punishment for us so that we could be with him. Romans Chapter 7, verse 24 says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It is Christ who saves us and reconciles us. And that brings us right up to our passage today in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13. Will you follow with me as we read this passage? Verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him 
of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your good word, for your great love and your great grace. God, as we turn to your word this morning, I pray that we would allow your word to take root in our heart. God, that you would grow it into great fruit among those you call us to go to. God, remind us this morning of the mission of the gospel. Now we love you and we thank you and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, I am a guy that has a tendency uh, when I want to start jumping into something or learning about something, kind of one of the first places I go to uh, is stats and statistics. Uh, Numbers certainly aren't everything, but If you study stats and figures enough, they can point you in the general direction of a place you need to start looking when you're trying to examine things. So when I became, uh, you know, kind of answered this call to follow God and to be in student ministry, I understood that there was a part of this call that was to become a lifetime student of student culture and student trends. And so uh, I, I study these things often and they can point us in the direction of things that are very helpful. This past week, I was able to share uh, with some other student pastors, the KBC events, some of these stats, because, uh, and even those of us that are in this hear these things, and we may know them, but hearing them helps us remember just how urgent these things are. And so I want to share some of these stats with you. Gen Z is the generation that is on the rise now. They are those who are born between 1997 Uh, and 2012. So that 15-year gap is Generation Z. The youngest among us are Gen Alpha. Those are the ones that are kind of just walking into elementary school. And and so those that are end of elementary school, middle school, high school, and college and young adults, they make up Gen Z. And we've studied Gen Z pretty well. That's roughly 70 million people or 20% of the population of the United States of America. So roughly 70 million people, depending on which census you look at. So of those 20%, of those 70 million people, here's what we've learned as we've studied kind of the religious sense of Generation Z. 9% of Gen Z identifies, as you survey, identifies as committed Christians. 9%. So those are the ones that grew up always there, active, they're sharing their faith, they're digging into scripture, they're doing the things of the church. 9 33% of Gen Z uh, is what we would call committed, uh, or excuse me, churched Christians. So they're the ones that are there, they're around the church, they're in the church, they know the stuff of the church. Uh, whether or not they've committed fully with their heart, that's kind of a thing uh, to be seen, but they are certainly here. 16% would call themselves unchurched Christians. So They're not here, they're not in the church, but if you ask them, they would say, yes, I'm a Christian. That would be a Christian of the cultural sense more than of the committed sense. 7% says 
other, right? So any other type of religious affiliation is 7%. And then this is the number that is shocking and a little bit scary. Highest we've ever seen among any generation ever, 34% of Gen Z says that they are of no religious affiliation, meaning they are intentionally not a part of any religious group. 34%. Those numbers can be kind of nebulous until we push them down into a context we understand. In Hardin County, that would mean this. There are roughly 15,000 students in the public school system in Hardin County. That would mean somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,500 to possibly 3,000 are committed Christ-following, Christ-honoring students, and over 12,000 students are of no or of moderately religious affiliation. That means that every time a student in middle school or high school walks out of these doors, they walk into a mission field. They walk into a place that is full of those who have great need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the church is uniquely positioned to make an impact on the world, not just students, but all of us. Because as true as that is of the public schools, it's just as true of all of us in our workplaces, in our gyms, in the places we go to hang out, the restaurants we attend. All of these places are full of great need. And the church is uniquely positioned because the church is the only place where the message that can save is given. We are the only ones, as Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name given under heaven whereby man must be saved. It is Jesus and only Jesus. We are the people who have the message of hope. So when you put the great need of the communities that we live in together with the mission that the church is given, we begin to see what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 10. He is giving to us the formula by which the gospel will get to the world. He is reminding us of God's plan. Now, Paul uses a method that I love but I also understand is not for everybody. Not everybody enjoys this method, but all of us, I think, at one point in our lives or another will use it, and that is the method of rhetorical questions. Questions that are asked but need not be answered because the answer is known. Uh, for seven years, I got to teach seventh and eighth grade Bible in a Christian school context, and I loved every minute of it. And I often to help students grasp the idea that they have the information they need would make use of rhetorical questions. The classic scenario, you write the homework on the board, you turn around, you see a student with the hand raised and you say, yes, Johnny, how can I help you? What's the homework? Well, Johnny, where would you find the homework on the board? It's a question, we know the answer, we don't need to be told and we all use these at one point or another, any parent has looked at their kid and said, are you supposed to do that? And every kid has ever answered with something like, no. Right? They know. They know the answer to the question. And so Paul uses these rhetorical questions not to embarrass, not to tear down, but to encourage the church to remind them that they know the answer. They know the formula they know how to get the gospel 
to the world. We already know the answers to Paul's questions, but it's helpful to walk through them. And I want to start at the bottom and work our way to the top as we see these questions. So three things I think we see as we ask these questions and know the answers. The first thing we see is this. The church is given the mission of making disciples. The church is given the mission of making disciples. Paul asks the question in verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? It is good for us to be reminded of the mission of the gospel. It is good for us to be reminded of the task. We ought to be hearing this passage. We ought to be hearing this question, how are they to preach unless they are sent? And our our mind and our heart should be called back to Matthew 28, where Jesus gives to the disciples this mission to go. Go into the world and make disciples. Go into the world baptizing. Go into the world teaching them what I have taught you. Now, we know, as it happens, that the daily grind of life often removes from our thought process those things that are really urgent. And we can allow those things that are most important to fall into the back seat, right? That's the way that I think of it, right? So anybody who has a car and you're driving, you know the idea of getting into the car with all the things that are important to you and you take those things and if they're really important like your phone, they make it into the cup holder. If they're kind of less important, maybe they make it into the passenger seat and they're there. But then as life happens, you move through and other things get into the car through your hands and then those, those things end up in the passenger seat and pretty soon the passenger seat is full. And so you have to start kind of doing a priority flow chart, right? And so suddenly things that are a little bit less important get moved into the back seat, right? And so those things, I can get to them. They're, they're kind of back here, but I can still reach them if I need to. Maybe I'll have to hit a stop sign first or whatever, but I can get to that thing. And then if you have children, right, those things that end up in the back seat always inevitably end up in the floor, right? And then suddenly five months down the road, you're trying to find the thing and you don't know where it is. And it's because it's up under the passenger seat. When not a few months ago, it was of so much importance, it had to sit right there beside you. The natural flow of life has a point of taking that mission that is so urgent and dulling the reality of that mission in our hearts. And we can allow the mission of the gospel, the mission of making disciples to fall into the back seat where we just don't Think about it all the time. It's an encouragement for me to remember that Paul here is not writing a dissertation to brand new believers who have never heard this before. Rather, Paul is writing to the church. He's saying, church, these are things that you need to be reminded of. You need to make sure you know that if you aren't sent, if you aren't going, they aren't hearing. So the church is given the mission of the gospel. Second thing we see is this. The church is given the message of salvation. Paul asked two questions that I think help us see this. 
He says, how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Now, most often, and for good reason, we hear the word preaching, and we tend to think of somebody standing where I am doing what I'm doing, and certainly that would be a part of it. But the reality is the core of this word just means telling, or probably more emphatically means warning, warning somebody of consequences. Now, we are a people who love to give warnings. We, we do this all the time. We share warnings with people constantly. This is the life of a toddler parent. Always warning, don't touch that stove. Don't eat that toy. This is just what we do. We are daily giving warnings, probably more warnings than anything else. But anyone who frequents a coffee shop, careful, it's hot. This is a warning, right? You have a friend or a grandparent, don't open that spam email. Don't click on that shady text message. Don't answer that call from a number you don't know. They're just asking about your car's extended warranty. Right? These are things that we know. These are warnings that we are aware of. We give warnings and consequences all the time. Yet often the thing that we ought to have the most dire warnings about we keep to ourselves out of fear of maybe saying something wrong, out of fear of being embarrassed, out of, I know for many students, out of fear of losing a friend. But these are the greatest things we could be warning people about. We also often fail to warn and we make excuses for that. I know I've done this before. We say things like, if... I just live my life in a way that is attractive for the gospel, then those people will just come to know Christ in the way that I live. Imagine doing that with a three-year-old. If, if I just live my life in such a way that I never touch the stove, then my three-year-old will certainly never touch that bright red stove. We know that's not going to work. Our warnings come in the form of speaking the words of life to those who need to hear it. We have to speak the words of the gospel. Absolutely. Paul tells us that we need to live our life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Absolutely. Our lives should be attractive to the lives of non-believers. The community of the church, which we'll talk about in a moment, should be a beacon to a community that often has no hope. That is certainly true. But Paul doesn't say, how will they believe in what they have not seen? He says, how will they believe in what they have not heard? We need to speak the truth of the name of our great Savior. The church has been given the mission of making disciples. The church has been given the message of salvation. The church has also been given the joy of community. Paul asks, how will they call on whom they have not believed? As we share the gospel, as we intentionally speak the words of life to the people we come in contact with, there is built into the gospel message a call to respond, a call to do something about what you have just heard. Will you commit? We do this through 
calling people to confession, calling them to repentance of sin, and calling them to a life committed to Christ. But we have to understand this is not the easiest thing to do, as many of us know. This is why Jesus often said hard and difficult things. Why people often heard Jesus speak a difficult truth and they walked away in a way that the disciples got often confused about. Like, hey, Jesus, if you just hadn't said that, those people would still be here. But if he hadn't said that, they wouldn't understand what it really meant. It's hard to follow somebody if you don't count the cross or take the cost of taking up your cross and following. These are difficult things that Jesus said. Count the cost. We have to call people to follow Christ. We know the truth. We know the reality. We know the great joy that is there, but it is often difficult. And this is why we must make this an invitation, not to a life lived alone, but a life lived in community. The community of the gospel, the community of the church. Here in the church, the work of the gospel is done together, side by side with other believers. Here in the church, the difficult task of living as followers of Christ in a fallen and broken and oftentimes hurtful world are shared together. We carry one another's burdens. Here in the church, the joy of an abundant life is celebrated together with others. The reality of the gospel is that we were not designed, we were never meant, we were never created to live in isolation. And in the same way, the message and the mission of the gospel is never one that was meant to be undertaken as a solo mission. It's not something we do alone. But God designed us to live in community And the gospel is most appropriately shared from and as an invitation into that community of Christ. We must be a people who are inviting others into the community of the gospel, into the community of others who are chasing after Christ. So Paul lays out the path in a pretty clear fashion, in a pretty clear way. That the church is meant to live as those sent out to preach the good news to those who will hear, believe, and call on the name of the Lord. We must live as a people inviting others into the community of Christ. This is our mission. This is what we are called to do. So the question then is, how can we do that? Because if you're like me, the daily grind of life can cause you to put things in the backseat. It can cause you to push things that are of great urgency into a place where you just don't often see them. So how can we make sure that we are keeping this mission and message of the gospel urgent in our lives? I think there's three things that we can do that you can walk out of the doors today and do these things. The first is this. We must love those that God loves. We must love those that God loves. And I would say we must intentionally love those that God loves. We all know what it means to love somebody who is unlovable because that's how God loved us. That's how he loved us. I love how Paul starts chapter 10. He says, brothers, my heart's desire, my heart's 
longing and prayer to God is for them, those who don't believe, is for them, is that they may be saved. We probably know Paul's story of his radical transformation, the gospel of seeing his magnificent Savior and his heart being changed in turn. And you read letter after letter that he wrote, and you study the book of Acts, and you see that Paul had a clear passion not to just preach, but a clear passion to see people who don't know Jesus come to know him. And so we, too, must intentionally develop a deep burden and love for those who are lost. And I think the best way we can do that is to pray often and pray specifically. We must be a people who pray often and pray specifically. I would often share with students when I was teaching as we walk through our unit on prayer and they would ask questions like, isn't it enough that I just pray? And I would ask, how do you pray? And they would say, well, Lord, I pray for lost people. And that's good. That is a very good thing. And I would celebrate that prayer. But I would ask them this question, who do you know that is lost? And they would have to stop and think for a second. Who do you know that is lost? Pray specifically for that person. Put a name and a face to lostness. Who are you praying for? Pray often and pray specifically. Pray for those who are in your life who are lost and pray for them by name. This is something I've learned to be absolutely true in my life. The more I pray for a lost person, specifically by name, the harder I work to make sure that I'm seeking out opportunities for that person to hear the gospel. Be that an invitation to the church, be that a personal sharing of my own faith, a telling of my story in a way that is compelling, I'm gonna work harder for those who I pray specifically. We have to love those that God loves. Number two, we must be equipped for the mission. We must be equipped for the mission. It would be foolish, Jesus speaks to this truth, to start a job not knowing everything you need to finish that job. I had a deck in my backyard and part of that deck collapsed. And this was like every time I looked at it, it seemed the the deck seemed to get bigger and bigger every time I looked at it. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna take care of this thing myself, right? And so I went to my garage and I grabbed my hammer and I walked out there and I just started smacking boards and breaking things apart, and it didn't take me more than eight or 10 minutes to realize that this is not gonna work. And so I said, I know what I gotta do. I'm gonna do what every man loves to do. I'm gonna go to Lowe's, and I'm gonna buy me a big, heavy hammer, right? And so I went and bought a sledgehammer. And so then I started taking that sledgehammer to boards, and I, man, that was way more effective. But it didn't take me long to realize that swinging a five-pound, eight-pound sledgehammer, I'm gonna get pretty tired pretty quick, and it's not working. So then I go to Lowe's again. It's a great day. I got two trips to Lowe's. And I get a T-bar crowbar and I get a sawzall and I'm buying these tools and then I can come back and then I can start to pull this thing apart. But man, how slow was I in going that I had to stop when I should have just gone, what is it going to take and can I get this done? Jesus reminds us that we need to know what we need to do as we go out. That's why evangelism and discipleship, they go together. These are not things, and I know that you know this, but they're not things that are separate. 
Discipleship isn't complete until we are evangelizing. Evangelism isn't complete until we are discipling. These things go hand in hand and must work together. Constantly sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it and then sending those who have heard it out with the gospel. We have to be equipped for the mission. Number three, and this is kind of rubber meets the road stuff, we have to be obedient to the call. At the end of the day, we have to do that which God has commanded us to do. It's not enough to know if we don't go. And I'm not saying this is easy. Uh, I'm not saying this is carefree. Uh, I'm not saying if we just decide now to go that everything's going to fall into place and we're going to walk out of here, every single one of us, the next Billy Grahams. But I am saying we have to make the intentional, conscious choice to obey the command of God to go with the gospel. And the thing I notice about all three of these, loving those that God has loved, being equipped for the mission, and being obedient to the call, none of these are things that we can do without the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. None of these things are are parts of the mission that we will be able to accomplish without the deep work of the Spirit moving us, equipping us, and giving us a burden for those whom we need to go to. And so I recognize that at the very outset here, the thing we need to do is make sure that our hearts are pointed towards Christ. That our hearts are not hearts that, as I have seen happen in my own life, hearts that have allowed the mission and the urgency of the gospel to fall into the back seat. I have to make sure of that personally. This is why Paul is always sending letters to the church, reminding them of the gospel, calling them. This is why John reminded the church to remember their first love. This is what God has called us to And so the reality is all of us in hearing this have to ask the question, God, is my heart pointed towards you in the way that it ought to be? Is my heart desiring that you would create in me a burden for the lost? Is my heart seeking to be fully equipped? Is my heart willing to be obedient? Or perhaps for you, the question, is my heart turned towards Christ at all? And that might be the step for you to take this morning. Is knowing your sin and knowing your need for a Savior and knowing that God is calling you to this mission as well. So in light of that, in light of how we are to respond this morning hearing, will you pray with me? Father, we are so deeply indebted to you. And we, in our natural state, in our heart, and through our actions, reject you. God, we push away from you, and we want to go our own route and our own path. And in spite of that, God, you still love us. You still care for us. You still desire us to be with you forever. And you still give us a great mission, the mission of the gospel. So God, I pray for everyone here. God, I pray for myself that in in hearing this passage, 
in a new and a fresh way, or perhaps for the first time, we would commit our hearts to the mission. That we would know the deep grace that we can receive through your son Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And that today would be a day we say, God, whatever it takes, I'm going to be on mission for you. I'm going to go with the gospel. I'm going to love those you love because you loved me and you love them. And we thank you for your word and we thank you for the depth of your scripture and it's call to us to be obedient. God, I pray that we would all do that this morning. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.